Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. My name is Steve Caselli. I'm the Executive Director of ICOS. And in this podcast, you'll hear from a diverse representation from our community. We want you to be both informed and inspired by their stories and experiences, and we're so glad that you've joined us today. We're glad to be back again for another episode. And in this episode, it's a pleasure again to welcome my co-host, Dr. Arjun Ghosh. Arjun, you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Hi, thanks a lot, Steve. Uh, my name is Arjun Ghosh. I'm a consultant cardiologist at Barts Heart Centre and University College London Hospital. Really looking forward to this episode to learn more about this new term that's uh, introduced into the cardio-oncology lexicon. Excellent. We'll hold off on what that term is, but just say hello to uh, Dr. Charlie Porter. Uh, Dr. Porter is uh, well-known in our cardio-oncology community. He established the cardio-oncology program at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Charlie, you want to say hello? Hello, everyone around the world, <clears throat> whatever time zone you're in, which could be one of about 24, I think, that with the uh, coverage we have now of ICOS. I think that's about right. Well, uh, recently, Dr. Porter uh, published an article in the Jack Cardio-Oncology Journal, September of 2022, and the title of that article was Permissive Cardiotoxicity, the Clinical Crucible of Cardio-Oncology. So to begin, Charlie, I wonder if you could just tell us what is permissive cardiotoxicity? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm really, uh, really pleased to see that I, someone actually read the paper and is interested in talking about it more. That's always encouraging. Uh, I think uh, permissive cardiotoxicity uh, is a new concept that I think represents pretty much the polar opposite of a more primordial idea of prohibitive cardiotoxicity, which uh, started uh, in the anthracycline era where the cardiologists just carried a big stick. And if they saw any cancer drug causing any form of cardiotoxicity, they just beat the drug with a stick and told the oncologist to go do something else because the heart was abnormal and that was uh, impermissible. And permissive cardiotoxicity is the idea that um, toxicity is affecting the heart, you know, often uh, LV dysfunction, but hypertension and other things uh, are not precipitous events like a plaque rupture that leads to an acute myocardial infarction, but a a degree of progressive uh, uh, abnormality that can be identified and monitored and have the effects blunted. Uh, with close observation and uh, prudent management uh, of the uh, toxicity while trying to continue the uh, management of the cancer in in the best possible way to uh, produce a cure or prolonged survival. So if I'm understanding correctly, this is uh, the allowance for a certain degree of toxicity in order to continue the best cancer therapy. And I wonder, is this is this a term that you came up with, and how did you come up with this idea? Well, it, I, it, it's hard to know if you first came up with an idea. Um, but uh, I, uh, uh, my wife, I was talking to my wife about doing this podcast, and uh, she said, "Oh yeah, I remember you came up from your office one night and said, hey, you told, told, I told her that I just thought up this concept, permissive cardiotoxicity.'" 
but I didn't really know whether I had gotten it from somebody else or and adopted it uh, or it actually just clanged into my head. And I was at a uh, AHA uh, 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 cardio oncology science uh, 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 Zoom meeting with, you know, Susan Dent, uh, Javed Moslehi, Vlad Zaha, Tokyo Kuosa, uh, Tochi, and uh, I, I presented the, I, the term to them and nobody seemed to have heard of it. So I thought, if they don't know about it, it's new. And, uh, you know, that was uh, several years ago. And uh, thus far, nobody else has come up to me or emailed me or uh, gaslighted me on Twitter that I stole the idea from them. So I, I, I guess I did just think of it when I'm sitting in this chair in my uh, home office where I'm talking now. Well, that's fantastic. It seems like a logical, very useful concept. Arjun, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's it's a very interesting concept. I think that it is something that we probably all practice within cardio-oncology, but maybe, you know, the term hadn't been crystallized. And for sure, I think uh, Charlie does have the copyright because I can't recall hearing the term permissive cardiotoxicity before it came out in the paper. So I think, you know, kudos to Charlie and uh, his co-authors for, you know, getting it out there as a, as a kind of accepted part of the lexicon. So I think, you know, one of the, the questions, I guess, from a practical side that I'd like to ask Charlie is that um, given that, as, as Steve mentioned, that sometimes, you know, we might need to accept a degree of cardiotoxicity. Um, does that mean, Charlie, that you would advocate that um, we, we start uh, or carry on with cancer treatment without waiting to get, you know, good levels of cardioprotection on board? Or, you know, how, how does this work in practice? Well, unfortunately, uh, for us in the field, uh, you cannot uh, take uh, things like uh, um, post-MI or post-revascularization LV dysfunction and take three months to apply guideline-directed therapy to see if someone needs an ICD or qualifies for an ICD with sustained LV dysfunction. Because cancer cancer doesn't wait. It, uh, it, it sleep, it's got nothing to do 24 by 7 never has holidays. All it does is uh, you know, exercise uh, its properties of uncontrolled cell growth, a local invasion and metastasis. And you need to start soon. I mean, I, one of the cases that uh, I dealt with early uh, was a woman who uh, came to me on a Tuesday. Uh, she'd been found two days into the prior week to have lymphoma as the explanation for her little swole, uh, lump under her collarbone. And they and her uh, left carotid was encircled by the tumor, and uh, the oncologist wanted to start treatment with anthracycline two days later, and um, and I, I you know I uh, I was not uh, as involved with dexrazoxane then uh, as I am now in in that kind of situation, but uh, she was young, she had few risk factors for anthracycline cardiotoxicity, and I just told her. I think this is a curative tumor. Uh, your life and the lives of your three children under 10 all depend on this. And uh, we we can uh, la launch into this. And her EF was like 40% uh, by uh, two different modalities. And there's, you know, there's not much guidance. There's there's now more approval on guidelines of, of, of uh, starting therapy, but there's not a lot of guidance. And particularly, you know, several years ago, about starting anthracyclines with EF 
hovering around 40. But I just, you know, I just said, well, I talked to her. I talked to the oncologist. Uh, her uh, her stepmother, her mother was a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. And I got her on the call. And she understood risk-benefit ratio of allowing the tumor to uh, advance around the, her uh, daughter's carotid uh, or uh, take a chance on anthracycline. So that's what we did. I followed her closely. We got carvedilol. You know, when you don't have heart failure, the, you know, the, it's easier to advance beta blockers rapidly when you're dealing with stage B than advanced stage C heart failure. There's no congestion. Most of these cases, you're seeing what's stage B heart failure, asymptomatic LV dysfunction. And uh, particularly if someone's hypertensive, you can, you can rapidly advance uh, the drugs in an accelerated manner uh, and uh, start the therapy uh, start the therapy uh, for the cancer at the same time. And that's why I call this the clinical crucible because the, the crucible is the area where you're really creating a therapy. It's the center of treatment. And that is, uh, I think, different in cardio-oncology from assessing a risk profile or seeing someone post-therapy and you're assessing risks related to prior therapies. There's, you know, those things are not as compelling. They're not as time dependent. And you're not altering the outcome uh, rapidly within a period of days or weeks as you decide to initiate full therapy or not or use uh, an, an inferior therapy that may have less cardiotoxicity potential. So it's, that's, that's really one of those things where, um, you know, I tell the patients, I'm a little uncomfortable in advancing this, but I'm more uncomfortable in telling your oncologist that you have to go to with plan B. So it's a, it's sure. a, it's a two edged or maybe there's more than just two edges on the, on the sword, but, uh, uh, it's 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 challenging, and you're, they get your everyone in those visits. You, they they get your full attention. Yeah, I think you've really just brought out how we often have to go for an individualized approach in cardio oncology, and no, no two patients are the same, and there are quite a number of nuances in in all of these patients. And uh, I was talking to a colleague of mine who's not a cardio-oncologist who, who came across this uh, the, the paper that you wrote. And one of her comments was, um, th does kind of permissive cardiotoxicity mean that we, we should be just allowing or accepting a certain degree of risk? Or does it mean that we should be monitoring these patients a bit more closely? So she's somebody who was aware of the recent ESCI-COS guidelines, but hadn't necessarily read them in detail. And I think, of course, one of our aims is to educate you know, all cardiologists, all oncologists. So I, I don't know, Charlie, what you think about that comment. And I think it's quite relevant maybe to the case that you just mentioned. Well, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a blend of those. And I think the new ICOS, uh or ACC ESC guidelines published uh, um, uh, recently do leave a lot of path pathways to continue treatment without a clear description of how to how to walk along that path. And I think if you're comfortable with the idea of permissive cardiotoxicity, you know you are you you can decide this is this is kind of the uh, it's the enunciation of how you get from the guidelines which say may be considered. Well, if you are already, and people in cardio-oncology have been doing this, like you have been doing this for a while, 
perhaps not recognizing that there's a rubric, there's a, a what banner you're walking under. But I think uh, I think the whole concept of permissive cardiotoxicity and this and the uh, the guidelines increasing uh, um, uh, endorsement of finding a way to continue therapy. And I think in uh, in all these areas where the numbers are small, the drugs are new, uh, waiting for guidelines uh, to tell you what to do is not going to work. Guidelines, I find guidelines helpful. If you've got a lot of data, you can connect data points and make a big dark line connecting all these points and say, this is what you can do. But we're extending, we're, we're beyond the tip of the spear. These are new, perhaps a new drug with a new toxicity. And uh, you have to find your way to find a path to apply what you have seen in other drugs. And uh, in working with the oncologist and the patient say, we're going to move forward with this. Um, I just saw last week, I, I just saw a patient who had uh, positive troponin with, on a phase one uh, trial drug uh, that is uh, uh, one of these uh, a neurotropic uh, kinase receptor blockers. And uh, there was nothing in the investigator brochure about cardiotoxicity. And uh, so I went back and found two other drugs in that class that are FDA approved. And one of them, uh, entrectinib, had a 3% incidence of heart failure and a 0.3% incidence of myocarditis. So right now we're, we're kind of trying to sort out the myocarditis, but you're, you know, we're just dealing with new drugs, you know, that may come out. Margituximab uh, was approved for uh, metastatic breast cancer, HER2. Um, and, you know, the, the trials are, are you know, 800,000 people to start and 200 to finish. It's not at all like looking at Paradigm HF or Entresto, 8,000 patients in the trial. No surprises about what that drug's going to do. But there are, there, you have to, you know, every little creak in the floorboard could be a crack in the foundation with these new drugs. You just have to be alert, but, you know, maintain focus on the fact that these new drugs are approved for lethal cancers. If you or your institution would like to have credentials that confirm your qualifications as a cardio-oncologist or a cardio-oncology center of excellence, we encourage you to consider applying for our certification exam in cardio-oncology or our certification for centers of excellence. These are the only certifications currently available in this field. And it's a special opportunity for you or your institution to distinguish yourself, recognizing your expertise in the field. More information about both these opportunities can be found at ic-os.org, or you can email directoricos at gmail.com for more information. Now, I think you raise a really, really interesting point, because if you think of obviously one of the drugs we're more aware of, the checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis, you know, how important is the troponin rise? Is it going to actually be severe LV dysfunction? Will it be fatal? Will it not? So I think that that's a really important concept. And you, you touch upon this in your paper as well, because you talk about drugs with a safe harbor zone. And I think that, um, you know, as, as we've talked about, it can be maybe difficult to define and can be unpredictable. And as, as you've mentioned, what about new drugs? There are so many new drugs on the market, immunotherapies, especially nowadays. I mean, how, how would you approach something like that? I mean, as you mentioned this, you know, it's a, it's a phase one trial. And, you know, how, how can we get to the safe harbor for these newer drugs? 
Well, I, I think it's very difficult, and uh, and that's really fascinating uh, to be seeing someone where the the global experience is in a handful of patients, and uh, you know these these are not drugs um, being tried for rosacea, you know. So you know there's there's high stakes if they don't continue. These are all drugs where there's no no really good alternative, and uh, I think the safe harbor you just have to. Uh, and I think a principle that I, I can't fully uh, prove, but I think would be valid. I, I wouldn't want to go up against, uh, you know, in a debate. But I think uh, w- we are seeing very few drugs that have a precipitous onset of a catastrophic event. Most of the time, these things are graded. Uh, there's probably a graded toxicity, you know, and the, uh, the full, I mean, anthracyclines, I still see young people who show up in pulmonary edema after a fairly routine, low-risk administration of anthracyclines. But for some reason, that genetic profiling that we don't do routinely, they are vulnerable, and that's catastrophic. They're in the ICU, and they've got pulmonary edema, and they're EFs 15. But for the most part, these drugs are not causing, particularly the newer targeted therapies, are not causing uh, a fulminant problem. Some things like desatinib, with its pulmonary hypertension, seems to present fairly precipitously. But pulmonary hypertension is, is a very challenging di- uh, diagnosis or condition to detect early. No one, no one uh, that I've seen is doing routine echo Doppler monitoring pulmonary hypertension, PA pressures into satinib. That might actually be a way of identifying that early when the PA pressure has risen from 30 to 42 before it shows up at 90 uh, because it's it's probably there. It was, I don't think people are going to bed with a PA pressure of 30 and waking up with one of 90, but it's, it's you know, the revelation of that is sudden when something goes wrong enough to check. So I, 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 I think that a lot of these drugs uh, it depends on your uh, your threshold for uh, surveillance and the new guidelines. If anything, the ESC guidelines, I think, call for more surveillance troponins than we can handle. And a good example of that was Ron Watellis and the Stanford team uh, drew uh, troponins on everyone getting checkpoint inhibitors. And the uh, the specificity for myocarditis was rather low. And they had they had basically a rapid response team who during the protocol were assigned to, to go to that, that patient and evaluate them immediately. And that's not practical. I mean, I, uh, uh, I certainly, I, I mean, I don't think you would want to be um, identified to deal with every troponin that goes above 0.01 in your institution who's getting a checkpoint inhibitor, you know? You'd, yeah, you'd be sleep deprived and be cranky. <laughs> yeah, I, th- so I think it's that's tough to know how much knowledge is enough. Yeah, but, and I, I, there's a study in renal cell cancer that I've seen where they just sampled everybody with troponins. They had about a five or eight percent incidence of unexplained abnormal troponins just in association with cancer. Really? Yeah. So, you know, trying to look at all that stuff, uh, it's it's you know, to a certain degree, ignorance might be bliss on some of these things. Yeah, Wait till the I think, signal's a little stronger. 
Exactly. I mean, I think it's it's difficult, and sometimes we don't know what to do with all this information. I was in clinic this week with a senior trainee who basically asked me that um, uh, if we were to check the troponin in a patient who was giving checkpoint inhibitors, as soon as it's raised, do we immediately what do we do? Do we bring them in? Do we treat them with steroids? Do they become an inpatient? So exactly the points that you raised, and I, I think it comes back to maybe that thing you were talking about in terms of you know millimeters of mercury, pulmonary artery pressures. You talk about um, allowing a degree of you know cardiotoxicity. Um, what do you think, Charlie? Should this degree of cardiotoxicity be defined? Would that make it easier or would that make it more difficult, i.e. allow a certain degree, this is the cutoff, above that you must do something? Would that make our job harder or easier if something like that was in the guidelines? Well, uh, for me, being a natural contrarian, I don't think that whatever the rule was, there would still be reasons why I would go beyond it. And I think uh, uh, because and and when you're trying to get into guidelines, particularly if you're doing a guideline according to standards that are set for uh, common conditions with large clinical trials like coronary artery disease or heart failure, and then you're trying to apply them to situations where the, the cohorts are smaller, the experience with the drugs are different, and there are different you know, there are different types of drugs. I don't know that you can do that uh, or will ever be able to do that. Uh, And I think part of it is uh, just based on a balance. For me, it's a balance between working with the oncologist to find out what are the stakes? What's, what's wrong with this? And, and it, and the oncologist know um, about that. I had a patient who had gone through all the uh, and I heard two drugs fairly well, but her disease had had, had pro- progressed. And uh, she had uh, disease progression on uh, in hair two. And uh, I was cautiously, I mean, I was pr- bracing myself to try to continue therapy. And he said, I'll just switch her to sacituzumab. You know, it's a new dual action drug that a- uh, acts on this uh, uh, trophoblastic uh, uh protein uh, and uh, antrope two. And uh, there's an alternative I didn't know about, but you know, some of these alternatives will allow you to not have to push and, and you have to work with the oncologist to find out what the degree of pressure there is on the oncologist to stay with that drug or go to an alternative. So you're never alone. And, you know, I mean, I've found very few patients um, when you're dealing particularly with uh, curative intent cancer, where you're offering them the situation about um, having the cancer progress, but being happy that your ejection fraction is normal, you know, I mean, to me, it's sometimes people don't want to start off, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to pay for a, uh, for, for a, a novel anticoagulant because it costs too much or something, or they don't like taking a drug twice a day. And I just tell them, well, I think you'll like taking that drug twice a day better than you will stroke rehab, but it's up to you. And I think, and I think some of these other things, you work with the patient, you work with the uh, um, oncologist, and it's kind of a, it's, it's a triangulated uh, collaborative decision-making. And you can't, you can't do it by yourself in this situation. You don't want to. Yeah. And I think that that's the ideal kind of um 
you know, happy medium for cardio-oncology, isn't it? Collaboration between cardiologists, oncologists, and of course, you know, with the patient in the center. And, uh, you know, coming, I guess, to, to the end of my question, something that you kind of put towards the end of your paper, um, you, and you've, you've mentioned this already about changing mindsets of, you know, oncologists. And, you know, we've often had, and I think, so from my personal experience, this has actually changed while I've been involved in cardio-oncology. I remember towards the beginning of uh, my entry as a trainee, uh, oncologists would often stop treatment without even consulting cardiologists and saying that, you know, um, this, you know, cardiotoxicity, I'll go for another drug or I'll just stop or, or something along those lines. Then cardio-oncology came in, oncologists realized that there were some friendly cardiologists whose job was not to stop treatment, but to try and facilitate treatment. And they became a bit more willing to discuss and carry on and, and allow for certain, you know, abnormalities and toxicities. But I think that that may be restricted to those, you know, cardiologists who have an experience in cardio-oncology or who are interested in that. And of course, there are still, you know, many oncologists who refer these patients to their local cardiologists who may not be so, you know, uh, au fait with all the branches of, you know, cardiotoxicity and what to do. And you talk in your paper about changing the mindset of oncologists to, you know, um, should this therapy be discontinued to how can we safely continue the therapy? But I put it to you, Charlie, what about changing the mindset of, you know, general cardiologists who, who still actually have a big part to play in managing these patients? Well, I, I, that's a terrific question uh, and it's a challenge. But uh, I think that it is, it depends on the, uh, the breadth of vision of the cardiologist because, you know, when I started out, uh, you know, it's been a while, uh, uh, you know, the first... Uh, those back-to-back -back papers on trastuzumab in early stage uh, breast cancer were published in 2005, along with the uh, incidence of heart failure that kind of triggered my interest in this. But I, I think we're kind of closing the door on the era when uh, cardiologists will say, oh, we, we all see cancer patients. Why do I, you know, what's a cardio-oncologist? You know, it's just some guy who doesn't do procedures you know, they're not doing tavers, so they got to act like they've got something special to offer, you know. But uh, I think uh, just amongst my own colleagues, I've got like 40, I can't keep track, 40 cardiologists. But they are increasingly calling and just saying, you know, hey, what do you think about this? I'm doing this. Um, and uh, and it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an age-related thing, the fellows. But I think there's just an awareness that these drugs uh are odd they don't know them it's not just adriamycin adriamycin really you know that's kind of easy that's just cardiotoxicity you know just you know you, they know they can put a vat in them and transplant them if they get that far and you know that's cardio-oncology and you know if you're doing a valve replacement on somebody with uh, radiation it's going to be a tough dissection but i think people are learning that uh, these things are uh are more and more specialized and uh, they're just happier to collaborate either by a phone call or direct referral. But I think there's a lot more conversations uh, underway. Uh, and that's, that's, that's where it starts really is awareness and learning what they don't know. Um, and uh, so it's, but I think it's a process. Uh, and Great. It's yeah, underway. I think it's underway. 
I think this paper makes a terrific positive contribution to the field. I think in the oncology space, but as you're saying in the cardiology space as well, there's still that fear of this is a negative discipline of interrupting therapies when in fact it's quite the opposite. And I think your paper really pushes that. So Charlie, thank you for this uh, wonderful work. And I do hope that part of this podcast will get get some more readership for it. We'll definitely put links in the show notes to it. So thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Arjun. And I uh, just uh, just heard uh, yesterday that uh, the uh, planners of GCOS in Madrid in September are going to have at least a little segment on permissive cardiotoxicity. So yep. if you want to learn more, come to Madrid. Arjun, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Arjun. For more information about ICOS, you can go to ic-os.org, where you'll find more information about all of our programs, including our weekly webinars, our board certification exam, and other resources that we know you'll find helpful. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to hear from you soon.